Hey, what's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning back to the Alma Mac here on 93.3 CFMU. I would like to acknowledge that CFMU is situated on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee and the Mississaugas of the New Credit and protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. Thank you to all of you for tuning back on another Thursday, 12 to 1230, where we interview McMaster graduate students to learn more about their research. And on today's episode, we have another wonderful McMaster graduate student with us, Kay McCallum, who is a second year PhD student in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology under the Faculty of Science. How are things hanging for you today, Kay? They are wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Good. I'm happy to hear that. And I'm happy to dig more into your research. Um, it was really interesting. I know we were talking about this in the little preamble or pre-interview, but to kind of learn about your research and how it intersects chemistry and art conservation, which is something that I wasn't aware of. Um, yeah, it's it's actually um, a, a pretty big and important field, but it's it's one of those fields that you don't really get to hear about like at all when you're in school. It's only after you're out of school and you're like, oh, I wish I could have had this job that you finally find out about it. Oh, absolutely. I feel like that's um, true for this field and also for other careers as well. They're just not salient to us as university students. It's only once you maybe meet somebody who works in art conservation. It's like, holy, like this would have been incredible for me to go into. Yeah, it's um, it's actually a little disappointing, I think, that that a lot of these careers aren't really put out there. Um, but one of the things that I find really important about having these opportunities is that it really does appeal to to the people who like working at the intersection, who who want to be on on the history side and the chemistry side. Like in in undergrad, I was both a liberal arts kid and a sciences kid. So having the opportunity to do something that works with both is, is very important to me. So. And, and when you studied that intersection in undergrad, is that what led you towards your graduate studies? No, actually, um, my supervisor did some work in this field and just based on my background offered me the opportunity. So I was actually going to go full hardcore science and say goodbye to my fond dreams of history. <laughs> um, but but she was able to 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 lead me down this path and, mm. and give me this opportunity. So, yeah. Yeah. It's always um, interesting, but also really true how much serendipity affects our life or career trajectories just out of chance or, or by luck, how you get involved, whether it's to volunteer and it's uh, just kind of sets your stage for the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's something I sometimes uh, don't acknowledge as much. Uh, as, it, as it may be, Kay, I think we've been teasing the listeners um, too much. I, if you can talk a little bit about your graduate research and what it is that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I am looking at the application of atmospheric chemistry to art conservation science. Um, so what that really means is that uh, cultural heritage and art doesn't last over time on its own. It degrades. Um, things fall apart, things go moldy, things get eaten by bugs and, and rats, and um, things, things just tend to degrade over time. Um, so at most major institutions, there is a team of dedicated scientists working like in the basement, trying to make sure that all of this art and cultural heritage lasts for generations to come. And there are a lot of questions that they either 
uh, just don't have the time to answer or don't have the, the budget or the equipment or the, the research set to answer. Because uh, as you can imagine, if you're working in a, a museum, um, there are a lot of other considerations beyond just the conservation science program as part of the budget. So as an atmospheric chemist, there are a lot of overlaps with this field. Um, so for example, a lot of art is stored in frames or like acrylic enclosures, like you go to the museum and everything's behind a glass case. So the air inside that glass case is a different environment than the air inside the rest of the gallery that you're actually breathing. And if the art inside the box is going to interact with any pollutants or uh, any light or humidity in the box, it's going to be a different environment. So we need to study that separately. So as an atmospheric chemist, I can go in, research these indoor environments inside these enclosures, the same sort of way that I would research like an indoor environment inside a house or using the same techniques that I would use to research outside environments, um, but just apply it to the context of objects instead of um, climate or, or human health concerns. So it's, it's all the same science, it's just putting it in a, in a different field uh, to, to look at something that, that is also very important and, and affects uh, global populations as well. Yeah, Kate, admittedly, I, I wasn't aware of how um, potentially volatile the environments can be within, within the museum environments. You have to worry about what I imagine, temperature, humidity, and as you mentioned, uh, regular uh, decay, mold, things breaking down. Um, and that's, I think that's so interesting how there is a team of dedicated scientists to preserve these um, artifacts of cultural heritage. So, yeah, I, I don't want listeners to to get too concerned that like tomorrow all of the the art around the world is going to completely degrade um, because this this happens on a very very long scale. But um, it it is it is really it's a it's a weird science because it has a lot going on with it. But it also um, preserving things has gotten a lot easier over the years. Um, but as we've also had new types of art, new challenges have also emerged in, in trying to preserve them. So a lot of like new materials coming out all now need to be researched. Um, and in, in some cases, it was a little bit easier when everyone was just doing oil painting, because once we got how to preserve oil paintings unlocked, we were golden. And now everyone's using strange plastics or, or found objects or, or new art technology, which is weird to say. Um, but most most of the, the major things like light, heat, and humidity have been pretty well controlled. Um, it's there, there are still a lot of things that we don't know, but uh, it's not like things are going to break down tomorrow, which is thankfully okay. <laughs> and Kate, are there any specific materials that you look at in your own research? Yeah, so um, I actually started looking at acrylic paints. So uh, these are a, a, a new technology in the art field that they were developed in the 20th century. And most of the listeners may have had the opportunity to actually use them because most poster paints or tubed paints are, are classed as acrylic. Um, and these are a really cool art material because they're incredibly versatile. You can add water to them and make them 
thinner or, or you can bulk them up and, and do really cool 3D art with them. But the, the thing about them is that because they're, they're new and interesting and, and strange and weird, they don't behave the same way as other paints that, that uh, were used before, like watercolors or oil paints. And so some of these degradation processes that we see in these paints, some of the ways that they break down, some of the ways that they interact with the environment are completely new and different. And so looking at those and trying to understand how those work uh, is, is part of my research as well. So one of the components of, of acrylic paints that help make everything all smooth and wonderful uh, is called the surfactant. And as far as the painter is concerned, it doesn't matter at all. It's really just there to make sure that your paints don't get all weird and clumpy. Um, but after the paint dries, the surfactant can come up from the, the bulk of the, the paint to the surface of the paint and cause this weird kind of gross, cloudy haze over it. Um, if you've ever also been in like a, a bathroom that gets really humid and you've seen like those yellow streaks that go down the wall, this is mm. also surfactant coming to the surface. Um, and so it kind of looks a little bit gross and it's not really something that you want to see on the surface of like a, a Warhol painting or something in a museum. Um, but the other thing that happens is that it will react with light and degrade away. And so if light hits the surface of, of this painting, you're losing all of this original material. And we have no idea what that's going to do long term for, for the painting. Hopefully everything's going to be okay, because uh, it, it shouldn't really affect the, the paint film after the fact. But at the same time, it's, it's probably something that we don't want to happen long term, or at least we want to understand it better. So my research is, is looking at how this uh, photo degradation happens, how fast it happens, um, and this information is going to be really useful for art conservation scientists to be able to say, oh, this painting has been exposed to light for this many number of years, it's probably going to have a lot of this degradation happening, mm -hmm. or this one's been sitting in the dark for a while, it's probably fine. Okay, so almost creating these guidelines. Um, yeah. For Wonderful. And Kay, I'm certain um, our listeners are really interested to, at least I'm interested to know, what would a typical experiment look like if you're looking at this photo degradation process? What techniques or materials might you use? That is a really wonderful question. Um, so the, the very fun thing is that pretty much all of the instrumentation that I use um, is the same sort of stuff that my groupmates who are doing more like outdoor or indoor atmospheric chemistry for more climate or, or reaction um, settings would use as well. So I use a photoreactor. So basically it's a very, very strong lamp that uh, simulates essentially like sunlight. Um, and then I can put a bunch of wavelength filters over it to, to block out certain wavelengths so I can make it more like indoor light, for example. And so what I do is I take uh, solutions and these solutions can either be just surfactant and whatever else I'm looking at. So for example, um, titanium white pigment. Um, so if you've ever used the paint titanium white, uh, the pigment that makes titanium white is titanium dioxide, which is a very strong photocatalyst. So it, it makes a lot of reactions happen faster with light. Um, and so if you want to run things in chemistry and you have light reactions, uh, you'll use a lot of titanium dioxide. Um, oh. And 
for the same reasons, like this is why titanium dioxide will be in like sunscreens uh, because it, it helps um, reactions with light. So as you can imagine, this, this might be a problem because if it's reacting with light, um, there is actually a pathway for titanium white, titanium dioxide to help this surfactant break down faster uh, in the presence of light. So I might look at just like surfactant and titanium dioxide, like what I grab in the lab, order off like Fisher um, scientific chemistry supplier. Um, I might use titanium white artist pigment that I bought at like an art supply store like Michael's or something. Mm -hmm. um, I might take some diluted paint uh, that I just mix with water to make it a little bit uh, looser and, and easier to use. Um, and I'll just put those into this uh, photoreactor and expose them to a whole lot of light for a few hours. Okay. And then I can just take them out, extract them off and either run them using like um, liquid chromatography mass spec or, or MALDI mass spec, which is a really cool technique that doesn't require like separation. I can just throw my samples in and, and see my, my sample come up. And then I can track how the degradation happens by looking at how um, the, the, the mass of the molecules I'm looking at changes over time. Like if um, I see that the molecule over here is like at 1700 and then a few hours later, it's like at 1200, then it's, it's very clearly losing mass. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and these are the sort of techniques that I can, can use to look at things. So these are all pretty well established, just not really applied to my particular field. Nice. And it seems like some of the outcomes that you're looking at, you mentioned it. So perhaps like the lot, the change in molecules, the loss of mass, maybe the time it takes for the degradation process. Are those the outcomes you're interested in? Yeah. So this is, is really, uh, when we get down to it, it's, it's really a, like a classic physical chemistry question. So it's, it's uh, rate and mechanics and, and kinetics. Um, and it's, it's just really being uh, applied to, to art sciences and the, the really novel thing here is that my sample is paint and not um, organic molecules or, right. or other molecules you might see more usually. And Kay, I want to go back to something earlier. You mentioned how uh, when we're talking about the museum display cases, you said that the inside environment is quite different from the general museum environment. So if you can yes. speak to that a little bit and maybe how that potentially relates to another project that you might be working on. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're going to put something in a case, you want to make sure that the outside air can't get in. Um, and the, the main reason why things were put in cases way back in the day in like the 1850s is that there was all of this smog in the air. And as soon as you opened the door to any government building or gallery, all of this smog would come in and hit the painting and they looked horrible and gross and, and sooty. And it was just a bad time. Um, so they figured out that if you put glass over the surfaces of the painting, then any soot that's going to come in is going to hit the glass and not the painting itself. And so generally speaking, we then had a trend of, of things just being put in boxes. So uh, fragile sculptures that if you had a lot of pollutants in the environment would degrade, uh, got put in boxes as well, or, or frames just as a standard got uh, glazed, put glass over them. And they designed these enclosures to be very, very airtight so that things just couldn't leak in. 
the thing about that is that if you have a very low air exchange rate, then the air inside the box over time will um, have different processes. So like the, the surfaces that make the box might emit molecules and, and, and gas phase um, molecules into the box. The stuff inside the box may do the same thing. Things may um, hit surfaces inside the box and, and deposit onto them. They might react away. Um, and all of this is happening in a discrete separate location from the rest of the room because you're not really having any exchange of the air between the box and the and the gallery at large. So these environments um, in, in art conservation, they, get, they call them microclimate enclosures because they develop their own tiny little climate as it were inside the box. Um, and so these are really important to understand because you can take the conditions of the gallery room and that's all well and good, but that's not the conditions inside the box. Um, so it's, it's really important in art conservation to, to keep an eye on, on what's going on in these enclosures. Um, and so they, they will monitor for a lot of uh, gas phase pollutants. So a lot of stuff that you might be concerned about outside. Um, ozone, for example, is, is really big in art conservation. Um, you might have heard of, of sulfur dioxide and NOx as pollutants as well in, in like outside atmospheric chemistry. Um, and then there are some indoor pollutants as well that uh, they're concerned about like acetic acid and formic acid. Um, so we, we really monitor for all of these. And there are a couple techniques that are, are used to do this. Um, and one of them is a, a passive sampler uh, diffusion tube where basically you just throw this tube into the box and at the bottom of the tube, uh, there's a, a little disc that has been um, made there that on the, on the disc there's um, we, we put some sort of, of chemical on there that is specific for what we're looking for. So we can do targeted analysis. So for, uh, for example, formic and acetic acid, you might use potassium hydroxide. So you can do an acid base reaction. Um, and then air will just diffuse down the tube very naturally, like you're not doing anything, you're just leaving it in the box. Um, and after a while, you can take the tube out and see what's stuck to the surface and, and get an idea of these environments. But there may be some biases in, in this analysis. Um, so we are looking to see if we can correct those. So for example, if... Um, certain reactions can happen where we think that everything is corresponding to say formic acid, but we actually have something that is, is depositing onto the surface of, of the tube that is not actually coming from formic acid, but it's reading on the instrument as formic acid, mm. that we might be overshooting our analysis. So we're looking into to looking uh, to, to really seeing what, whether or not things like this are happening. Um, and if so, like, can we make conversion factors, correction factors, that sort of thing. Right. So very classic analytical chemistry question, just art. Yeah, absolutely. And just the, the attempting to increase the accuracy to better detect. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's wonderful. Um, I was reading a little bit into why these um, microclimates, these microenvironments you're describing, why they might even have an increase in formic acid and acetic acid. And I was reading that it might in fact be some of the display cases, like particularly the wooden ones that emit these molecules. Yes. Is that okay? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's actually a big problem. So, so wood and wood products. Uh, so for example, like oil tempered hardboard or pegboard, uh, medium density fiberboard, MDF. Um, if you've ever had like Ikea cabinets and they're sort of kind of like wood, but not actually wood, they're going to be made of MDF. Um, all of these materials are, are really fantastic. They're really easy to use. They're cheap as far as materials go, like wood isn't that expensive. MDF is very, very cheap. They're easy to work with, easy to build with. You can paint them. You can do a whole lot of other things with them, but they will give off a number of emissions. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's a really well-known, well-documented problem in art conservation that if you have a wood box, you are going to have formic and acetic acid buildup inside that box. Um, and so you might ask, well, why doesn't everyone just not use wood anymore? Exactly. <laughs> not use MDF? And that is a great question. And uh, the answer is, unfortunately, an equity issue. Because if if you get like a, an acrylic box that won't emit anything, it's beautiful, it's super stable, that's all well and good, but an acrylic box may cost you $200 for like a single box. Whereas if you go to like Home Depot and you just buy a bunch of wood, you could outfit a whole number of objects with boxes just with wood. And the the other thing that you have to remember is that the 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 large amount of objects in any given collection are not actually on display at any given point in time. So for example, if you go to the, the Royal Ontario Museum, the ROM, um, and you see all of these, these art pieces available uh, in, inside the, the galleries there, most of their collection is gonna be actually in the basement in storage. And so you're not going to be putting down $200 a box to, to store materials You're because you have too many of them to do so. So you're going to be putting them into wood crates. Um, and so really what the, the, the question has been in art conservation is not replacing the materials, but how best to uh, work with what we're already working with. So if we're going to be developing new techniques or, or researching new things, at the forefront of everything is that things have to be cost effective. Things have to be equitable. You can't just introduce a new like $20,000 technique into the field because then nobody's going to be able to use it. Excellent point. Excellent point. I'm also thinking about the debates that might occur in the uh, art history world about which paintings get the acrylic blocks versus wooden blocks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really complicated issue and it's it's not really something that I'm going to make decisions on. I just want to make sure that uh, the decision makers are as well informed as possible. And if you want to talk about that uh, informing decision makers and perhaps informing guidelines and recommendations, what do you hope are the ultimate implications of your research? I hope that uh, as far as things go, we have a better understanding of how these reactions work. Um, so a lot of these questions are very useful to, to art conservation research. So if you, you really understand what your data is, uh, you really understand what the reactions happening on an object are, you can better determine how best to preserve that object, both on a storage level, but also on a display level. Because the main thing here is that um, I'm very much of the opinion, and I, I think pretty much all uh, art 
conservation art curator people are on the same mindset that artists is public um, and art is a public good and also a of public importance um, because every culture has cultural heritage and cultural heritage across the board should be preserved um, and people in the future should be able to see and interact with the past and, and with their own cultures uh, from the past as well. And so it's, it's of real importance to make sure that stuff lasts long enough for people in the future to see it. So as far as my research goes, I want to, to fill in these gaps that currently exist in, in the art conservation science community, answer these questions that as an atmospheric chemistry research lab, we're really well equipped to address um, and, and just help better inform um, the, the art conservation community. And so this can be by doing these, these small physical chemistry or analytical chemistry experiments, um, doing experiments to help fill in data for, for modeling the environment in microclimate enclosures so that you can just put it all into a computer and see how things are gonna react before you even build a case. Uh, looking at materials testing, see how they're going to react, if they're safe to use or not safe to use. Um, all of these things are gonna be very important and will just lead to better display preservation and storage of art and cultural heritage to come. And what important work that you're contributing towards, Kay. Incredible. Okay, Kay. So during the pandemic, some individuals have either picked up or continued uh, some delightful hobbies. So I'm curious if that's been the case for you. Yeah. So um, my roommates are are really wonderful, um, and they've bullied me a little bit into to going on some bike rides and and hiking adventures. So I've, I've spent some time out on the Hamilton trails, which I found absolutely beautiful. Um, and that's been really helpful just actually getting outside and, and moving around and doing things. Uh, but I am very much an indoor kid at heart. So I've been doing a lot of arts and crafts and, and trying out some, some weirder ones. Um, so I, I started trying to learn how to crochet. Um, I've picked up book binding as a hobby. Uh, which has been really fun. Um, and yeah, that, that one is a, a little bit weird, <laughs> but I, I learned how to bind books just off YouTube videos. Um, and what is, it's, it's, what does that quick. involve? Like straight, like, how do you do that? Did you have to yeah, buy, so, purchase materials for it or? So, I, I mean, you, you can, um, you don't necessarily have to. So I have made books just from like printer paper, and then you just take like a little awl or, or a screwdriver or something um, and poke tiny little holes into it. And then you just take a sewing needle and you take oh. thread and you sew them up. Oh. Um, and then in order to make the cover, I've been doing hardbound books. Um, and there you can buy like book, um, book board, but I've just used cardboard and it's been pretty effective. Um, and then you can just like glue fancy art paper on top of it and, and make really beautiful books. Very nice. And what have you been using these books for? Or is it just the pure joy you get out of binding the books? Well, for, for me, I get the joy, but I've mainly made them as gifts for my friends. Mm. So I'm not sure what they've used them for, but hopefully for good. Nice. So. Oh, that's, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, it's, uh, 
having some extra time at home, I've also gotten into some YouTube rabbit holes. And just the uh, just yesterday, I spent the majority of the day just watching uh, wax seal stamps, just watching them melt and people. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the YouTube art community is absolutely phenomenal. And I found a really like a bunch of really phenomenal things on on YouTube to to just learn and and experience. So yeah, that's wonderful to hear, Kay. That's wonderful. And uh, thank you for coming on the show today and talking about your really important work. I learned a lot and I'm certain our listeners did as well. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. It's it's really been a blast. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. It was a blast for me. And thank you to all of you who listen every Thursday, 12 to 12.30. As always, we'll be back with another McMaster graduate student so we can continue to learn what they do inside and outside of the lab. That's it for now, folks. Take care. Hey, everybody. It's me, Adam. We've got a couple minutes at the end here, and... uh... I don't know, not much to say. Do you have any good sci-fi book recommendations? I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. You can tweet them at me, at Adam Fortis. On, uh, that would be on Twitter, I suppose. Um, yeah, whatever you got, let me have them. All right, see you next week.